Well, here's another one. I'm back, back, back again with a new episode of this podcast. Let me begin as I always do and introduce myself. My name is Brian Knight and this is Tell a Friend, a podcast about everything relating to politics and popular culture. I hope you've all had a good week. I certainly have. But I'm going to jump right in and start with the Run the News segment. So, here goes. The first story in Run the News is about Boris Johnson. So this week, BBC News ran a story regarding the former Foreign Secretary, who is also the current Conservative leadership contender. Sources close to Westminster had claimed that Downing Street had restricted the intelligence information that Boris Johnson was informed about during his time as Foreign Secretary. This is all because there was a rumoured lack of trust in Johnson by the Prime Minister's office. Obviously, or should I say unsurprisingly, both Boris Johnson and Theresa May's spokespeople have refused to comment on this report. It's understood that Prime Minister May and Boris Johnson have had a rather fraught relationship that extends even as far back as prior to her taking the top job. Just the other day I was reading a piece by Laura Koonsberg and she was reporting that she'd been told by senior staff that there had been instances when Downing Street had held pre-meetings before Cabinet and also smaller meetings without inviting Boris Johnson. As most people are aware of, in the EU referendum back in 2016, Boris Johnson was a Leave campaigner, and Theresa May officially backed David Cameron's government, which backed remaining in the European Union. So with this in mind, some have suggested that the only reason he ever was given the Foreign Secretary appointment was in order for Theresa May to keep him within arm's reach and to prevent him from undermining her efforts whilst on the backbenchers. A source even told BBC News that intelligence officials sought legal advice because they were concerned that Mr Johnson was in such a senior position and he was making all of these security decisions despite not having access to all of the information. From what I've seen, it does appear like there is somewhat of an effort in Westminster to derail Mr Johnson's current leadership campaign. I mean, the timing of this story really doesn't seem coincidental to me. It seems calculated. This story, you know, is coming a week after another story that was concerning Boris Johnson and his partner having a loud row, and as we all know, the police got involved to check on them. Many moderates within the Conservative Party are particularly concerned about the ease at which Boris Johnson talks about a no-deal exit from the European Union. Additionally, Boris Johnson has made Islamophobic, racist, and other offensive and inflammatory statements. Obviously, he is still far ahead in the leadership poll, so I doubt the story will really damage his campaign, but postal voting has already begun, so I guess we're going to have to wait and see what happened in the last leg of this leadership battle. Okay, my next story is all about the Home Office and the homeless. And this next story sees us go all the way from number 10 Downing Street and into number 2 Martian Street. Where is number 2 Martian Street, I hear you ask, in unison? It's the Home Office HQ. This week, The Observer reported that the Home Office has been drawing up and in some instances even enacting plans to use homelessness charities in order to deport non-UK and non-EU people. This is all being reported after internal emails and documents were sent out by the Home Office to multiple charities asking for confidential and personal information of rough sleepers. Not only is this a violation of European privacy laws, which we're still in, but it's also highly immoral. This current Home Office scheme is targeting vulnerable non-UK and non-EU migrants, but I want us to remember that 18 months ago, the Home Office had planned to use a similar deportation scheme to deport EU homeless individuals, 
but they were forced to cancel their plans after the Supreme Court found it discriminatory and unlawful. This scheme is honestly as disgusting and predatory as they come. It is clearly an extension of Theresa May's hostile environment policy. To me, it just seems like the ghost of May keeps reappearing. The current Home Office is so obsessed with deporting migrants and maintaining their tough stance on immigration that they're literally seeking personal details of people without their consent. That's what I want everyone to remember here. This information that they're seeking would be given without the consent of the homeless people. I don't know how many more scandals it's gonna take before full investigation and inquiry is carried out into the Home Office and its conduct. The department seems plagued by discrimination, immorality, and illegality. This hostile environment is so insidious, and it seems about time that, you know, Theresa May and the rest of her conservative government just eat crow and take responsibility for fostering such vicious government policies. And for those people who aren't enraged by stories like this, just try and see things from the perspective of those targeted by this policy. You know, I refuse to ever stay silent about stories like this. It just infuriates me. You know, I just remember, there but for the grace of God go I. And I hope I never forget that. And I hope none of you ever forget that. Okay, I'm gonna move on to my What Went Well segment. Today for What Went Well, I wanna highlight Nigeria. The Nigerian president, President Buhari, finally signed the ACFTA agreement, which stands for the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. <laughs> I finally said that all right. He signed it in Niger this past week during the African Union Summit. This comes after months of stalling the agreement as Nigeria and their leading business advisors had expressed reservations towards the whole plan. The ACFTA agreement is a promising plan to drastically cut tariffs on goods within the continent. The agreement sees leaders pledge to actively encourage more trade with other African countries. Now, a barrier to intracontinental trade has been security and poor infrastructure. The reason I love this agreement so much is because of the pan-African future I think it could lead to. As we speak, intracontinental trade in Africa is shockingly low. I mean, only 16% of Africa's trade is within the continent. Now, can we compare that to Europe, where internal trade in Europe stands at 70%, and even Asia, where their intracontinental trade is 51%. These figures, by the way, are all from 2018. I really believe that this agreement could help create a continental trading area similar to the European Union, which allows for free movement of goods, people, services, this could really help stabilize Africa's continental economy, it could also alleviate a lot of political conflict, and it could lead to stronger ties between nations. This is also an excellent way to prevent the West and other nations preying on Africa, like they have and continue to do. I mean, we've seen this with China, Russia, France, America, and Britain. All of these nations just salivate at the thought of gaining influence in Africa. I mean, China obviously is the one that's most notorious for their Africa ambitions right now. It's estimated that this agreement will boost internal trade in the continent by 60% by 2022. Now, currently, Eritrea is the only country outside this trading bloc who's refused to sign. Whilst this has taken longer than I think it should have, I do think we should applaud Bihari for finally signing this agreement along with the other African leaders. Okay, the time has come for the Be Better segment. I move on to talk about the story because it really rattled me, and you know, some even say I was discombobulated. If you know, you know. Anyway, so I was perusing around Twitter and I saw this post by a gentleman called Ken Apollo, who tweeted a picture of a job description for the New York Times Nairobi bureau chief. 
The job description reads as follows. Our Nairobi Bureau Chief has a tremendous opportunity to dive into news and enterprise across a wide range of countries, from the deserts of Sudan and the pirate seas of the Horn of Africa, down through the forest of Congo and the shores of Tanzania. It is an enormous patch of vibrant, intense and strategically important territory with many vital storylines including terrorism, the scramble for resources, the global contest with China, and the constant push and pull of democracy versus authoritarianism. The ideal candidate should enjoy jumping on news, be willing to cover conflict, and also be drawn to investigate stories. There is also a chance to delight our readers with unexpected stories of hope and changing rhythms of life in a rapidly evolving region. Now, Class, can anybody tell me what's wrong with this? Yep, you've guessed it, everything is wrong with this. The narrative in this job description, you know, it helps to explain why Western reporting of the continent is so problematic. How can you actively seek reporters who will, and I quote, be willing to cover conflict, terrorism and all of this, and also delight readers with unexpected stories of hope? Honestly, it's disgusting. This is not the first time that the New York Times has shot themselves in the foot with regards to, you know, their questionable conduct. Just last year, in January 2019, well, this year even, they incensed Kenyans due to the way that they reported the Nairobi Dusset Hotel terrorist attack. The New York Times, as well as other outlets including the Mail Online, made the decision to publish photographs of dead individuals and other victims before the attack was even over. Now, understandably, Kenyans were angered by this. Due to the timing of the publication, many family members may not have even been informed that their loved ones had died. This was just shambolic. Many people highlighted the double standards in reporting, as previous terror attacks in Europe had seen Western publications following stricter rules of reporting and shown greater restraint in their publishing. But the reporting of Africa, whether it be through comic relief, volunteerism or Western news is just appalling. The reporting is, you know, homogenous, degrading, duplicitous and, you know, just simply unfair. For those of you still questioning whether there is a double standard, I really implore you to do your research, okay? Read Afua Hirsch, you know, her book British. Read Akala's book. Read Chinua Achebe. Read Chimamanda, read, 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 read up on it. It's all out there. I mean, it's, it's clear for me to see. Maybe other people need more convincing. But that's all I want to say about that. It just infuriated me seeing this job description looking for people to continue the single narrative, this degrading narrative. It, it, it's just infuriating. So let me leave you with this famous proverb. Until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And I love that quote. So that's Be Better Done. Now this week I really don't want to leave it on a bad note. So I want to talk about a book that I recently read and loved so much. So following my exams, I decided to buy an audiobook for, for Chelsea Handler's number one best-selling book, Life Will Be the Death of Me. The audiobook is read, of course, by Chelsea Handler herself. And I think it's just over five hours. I've been a long fan of Chelsea. I've watched her documentary series available on Netflix. I've watched her talk shows and I've even braved watching her comical Instagram cooking tutorials, which are really awful. For those of you living under a rock, Chelsea is an American comedian, talk show host and TV producer. Her book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, is honestly one of the greatest books I've read. And I do use the word read loosely because, again, I listen to it. 
You know, I've previously been against audiobooks, probably due to slight academic snobbery, you know, but this time I decided I'd listen. Her book details the year of self-reflection which she embarked on after the election of Donald Trump. The election caused her to react rather viscerally and caused her to have a bit of a breakdown and, you know, she was in a bit of a fit of rage. She began therapy with Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Dan Siegel, who helped her open up about one of the greatest losses in her life, which was the death of her brother Chet. I listened to the audiobook on my daily walks and on numerous occasions I, I, I just had to stop and process what I was hearing because, you know, she, she can make you cry and laugh at the same time. It's really a wonderful skill that she has. Now, Chelsea was very raw and candid about her process of grieving and about how the death of her brother when she was a child came to define her adult relationships. Chelsea's reading of her book was so personal and made me feel as if I was, you know, talking to her personally. On countless occasions, she would break down and sob whilst revisiting her brother's death and, and revisiting the therapy session that she went through with Dan Siegel. My greatest takeaway from her book is the importance of differentiating empathy from sympathy. She really does hone that message in. I honestly cannot stop recommending this book. Chelsea gives a rare emotional side of herself, you know, that we're not used to seeing in her talk show and in her comedy specials, and she really does bear it all. I love Chelsea Handler, I love her book, and I loved all the lessons I learned from it, and I recommend it to you all. It's a great summer read, and like I said, you'll cry, you'll laugh, and then you'll cry again. It's an amazing book, I recommend it. Go and read it. Okay, that's all I have time for this week. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode. It's been rather a roller coaster of an episode, and, you know, I hope you've all enjoyed it. But like I always say, if you've enjoyed the podcast, what are we going to do? We're going to read the title and we're going to tell a friend. And if you didn't enjoy the podcast, you know what? You clearly weren't listening. So rewind, skirt, skirt, listen again and enjoy. Have a good summer, everyone. Bye. Bye.